it has been very, very difficult, particularly for people with disabilities, because their routines are pretty much living life, but football is their main life. There are more Asians involved in football than you would expect. There are nowhere near as many Asians involved in football as there should be. Join us on the Our Game 2 podcast as we celebrate the ones that are and discuss the ones that aren't. Hello and welcome to this week's show. I'm joined as usual by Z from at Desi B-A... No, B... No, that's it. D, at Desi B-A-L-L-R-S, no E. Is that right? How you doing, Z? Happy, I'm excited. Uh, you... <laughs> You're always you excited. Put, you just put me off with your spelling there. <laughs> you just completely threw me off. But yeah, no, I'm excited for another episode. Cool. And this is a friend of yours, I believe. Someone you've known in a previous lifetime. That's correct. That's correct. I'm always excited to talk to my friends. Blast from the past. Cool. Okay. You can tell us more about that afterwards. And also, Kevl at K-E-V-A-1 underscore K-P on Instagram. How are you doing, Kevl? Yes, I'm very good. Thank you. Start with Z. What's been going on in the football world this week? I think the biggest story that's just um, seems to be growing, it's something that's been growing for a few weeks now, is uh, professional football has been abused on social media. Uh, we saw Jan Danda uh, subjects to racist abuse on Instagram following Swansea City's FA Cup tie with Manchester City last week on Wednesday. Um, and it was on the same day when Facebook responded by saying they were appalled by the level of abuse that players were getting. And then a couple of days later, we saw the perceived action they took against this individual who abused Jan by giving him a ban what was DMs. what was their actions well from what we read and what we've seen is that they've just given him a ban on his dms to make him think about his uh his actions um and obviously Jan and, and swansea city have come out and said that's not that's too lenient as an action because obviously the abuse has happened happening to players quite regularly we've seen reese james and uh, Twinzebi and I think more recently it was uh, Anthony Martial as well who received uh, online abuse um, and then when you see that uh, the type of punishment that the social media organisations are, are handing out at least in this case with Jan's uh, situation it makes you think is a DM ban and uh, a period of reflection for the individual who was the perpetrator of this is that a deterrent or is that and gonna encourage more abuse to happen because you know that the ultimate kind of punishment that you'll receive is just a slap on the wrist, it seems. Yeah, no, it did seem incredibly light. Um, what are your thoughts on that, Kevil? Yeah, I think it comes back down to the question of uh, obviously the racism's terrible and we don't want to see it in our society, but it comes back down to the question of what is the solution to the social media abuse problem? Is it to that factor authentication? Is it going to be um, IP bans? I think there's serious questions that need to be um, addressed within social media companies and between footballing a- uh, agencies and bodies and the social media companies themselves. Um, and it's not just the social media companies and the football clubs and organizations problem. It's a society-wide problem as well. So it's a big topic that's going to be at the forefront of people's minds moving forwards and I think it will take some time before we come up with some adequate solutions. 
Several organisations, I know the PFA, the FA, Kick It Out, I can't remember who else, they wrote an open letter to the social media companies. See, with your journalistic background, what are they hoping to achieve from that? I think it, on the one hand, it's, it's to show the togetherness of the organisation. They always seem to work not always in tandem with each other, but it's a show of unity and strength between the different organisations that make up football in this country. Um, and I guess it's a statement of intent as well, because we've already seen uh, the Premier League's No Room for Racism uh, campaign initiative that's happening. We've seen players taking the knee before before kickoff, uh, before every Premier League game and EFL game as well, as a, as a sign of showing that we're raising awareness to the to the issue. Um, what happens next is going to be down to the social media companies. I know the government have said we're going to hand out bans. We're going to take a stance uh, and 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 uh, uh, hold the companies accountable. But as Kevin mentioned, it's a societal issue, so it's all good going after social media companies. That's great, but if a government's getting involved, what are they going to? Be, I'm just talking about a government perspective. What are they going to do in terms of addressing issues in society? I think, and also, and this is my viewpoint, certain things that certain ministers and MPs have said in the past hasn't been great in terms of helping any race relations. So are they going to hold themselves accountable? If they are going to hold companies accountable, then they should be holding themselves accountable. But that's a story for another day. And in terms of football, um, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult one. I mean, it's a developing story. I know Yan, Yan himself mentioned that he wasn't happy with the, the, the leniency of the punishment to the individual. And he's, he's seeking to meet with the social media companies to basically explain the impact that it's had, had on him and, and could have on others as well, because he's raised the issue. How many countless others haven't raised the issue? I know it's become on trend now to be talking about players being abused, but we can't just say this has happened in the last few weeks. I'm sure there's been cases of this over a period of time. And now people are speaking about it. Now we realise it's an issue, but it's it's kind of embedded inside, I guess, certain parts of society that, and I think most people don't even think it's, there's anything wrong with abusing the player. Um, and there's another argument to suggest that because there's no fans in the stadium, normally when you go to the football, you'll hear all sorts of things in the crowd and it's a chance to vent and, and release your frustrations and other parts of life. When you go to the football, you just release it on the, on, in the terraces because you're not having that. Is this what we're seeing, that there's an amplification of abuse happening online because there's no other way to amplify your kind of frustrations in, in, in a different environment? Um, but I don't know. I, I, I don't have an answer on what should happen next. I think there needs to be some kind of action. But as Kevin mentioned, this, this question needs to be asked. And what happens with um, the steps that social media companies can take? Do they uh, create the you know, like identification processes where you need to um, attribute accounts to actual people? Do you then do a uh, check where these uh, where these accounts are being held, like where the IP addresses, and then ban the IP addresses or report them back to the uh, the internet service providers to, to find the identity of these individuals? But then you've got the other aspect of masking your IP. You could use a VPN and... You could be uh, sitting in London, but uh, using the web according to your VPN in another part of the world and to bypass certain things. So it's a different one. I don't know what the, what the actual answer is, but it's a developing story. Uh, and I pray that we don't hear another one. 
we don't hear about another player being abused. One of the frustrations that I see is I'm not sure how a player in this situation could win. I will use the example of Ian Wright a few weeks ago where he basically he forgave an online abuser. And then the judge used that as an excuse to be lenient on that particular individual. That's that frustrating. Um because I guess if if he hadn't, if he'd said, yeah, throw the book at him, then Ian Wright would have got abuse. He'd have been called the angry black man. Uh, do you know what I mean? The stereotypes would have come out, etc. So he wouldn't have won, even though that wouldn't have been a racial charge against him. At the same time, he's forgiven someone and someone's got away with it. Kevil, just to come to you for a second... What would you say to someone who said this is or should be the online equivalent of sticks and stones can hurt your bones, but words can't? I think the way that you perceive abuse is is subjective to the individual and certain individuals will take abuse in a certain way and certain individuals will take it another way. So, for example, I've worked with a number of different players who are able to deal with online abuse, hate, hatred and racism in a very, very... Um, calm manner and they're able to either just block it out delete the tweets and not let it affect them and then on the flip side I've also had the uh, unfortunate pleasure of working with not the unfortunate pleasure of working with the player specifically but the way that they've dealt with the abuse and the racism in a in a very emotional manner and there's no right or wrong way to deal with it everyone's got their own subjective way of viewing these um, these tweets and this abuse what I would say is that if you are receiving online abuse or if players are receiving online abuse, they really need to evaluate from their point of view anyway, how much they use social media to protect their mental health. And then the conversation needs to be had with the social media companies about how they can um, eradicate this from, from these platforms, because the the ultimate message here is that social media is there for players, particularly to use these platforms to interact with fans and to give us insight into their lives, which they feel fit. And now that that privilege is is being taken away because of a few stupid individuals, from a player's point of view, I completely understand now why they shut us out of their lives because they don't want to have that level of abuse targeted at them. And the only people that are going to suffer as a result of this is us because we're not going to get that insight anymore. So if you're a player or if you're someone involved in sport or if you're an Asian in sport and you receive online abuse, I would definitely say limit how much you use social media, limit how much you tweet. I know it's not not a great situation to be in, but for your own mental health and for your own safety, it's the best thing to do moving forward until this gets sorted. Do you have any suggestions for people, perhaps not necessarily sports people, who are receiving online abuse of what they could do, where they could turn to for help? Yeah, if it's if it's hate speech, you can report to the police because it's, it's, it's illegal. You can't put hate speech out there. And a lot of people forget the difference between hate speech and free speech. There is a there is a very, very strong line in the sand between the two of them. So if you're receiving hate hate speech online, you can go and report it to the authorities and you would like to hope that it would be dealt with in the, in the most appropriate way. If you're receiving abuse, which doesn't cross that line, I would suggest you block people or you limit your social media use, like I said, because at the end of the day, the only person that's being affected by that is, is your own mental health. And in times like these where we're spending significantly larger amounts of time on our social media accounts and on our phones these these issues have only been exacerbated so those would be my my two tips moving forward with with regards to social media use 
Right, we'll move on to this week's interview. We're interviewing Jasby Abut. So let's get straight into it. So we are now joined by Jasby Abut. Jazz, how are you doing? I'm good, thanks. Thanks for having me on. No worries. We're excited to have you. So as far as I know, currently you work for the Birmingham FA under the Diversity and Inclusion banner, and you also consult on the FA under the Talent ID scheme. Is that right? That's correct, yes. Okay, and I also believe you've also done some work with, or you are doing some work with West Bromwich Albion. Yeah, that's right. So um, I'm looking at, I'm a board member for them. Um, um, It's pretty much around highlighting the piece around equality and, and diversity and inclusion, which is, Really exciting, um, particularly with the, the time that we're in now, uh, which is at the forefront of everything that's taking place. So, yeah, I'm really excited about what that looks like. OK, and just to clarify, first of all, it's the West Bromwich Albion first team, right? The official uh, it's, football club. It's uh, priorities are on the women's at the minute. However, there, there is talks around um, joining the whole piece together around the whole football club. So whether it be academy, uh, first team, uh, men's and certainly regional talent clubs with the uh, girls and women's section so the whole wider piece really which is yeah certainly uh, of its first of its kind uh, and I'm pretty much one it could be directing and overseeing the, that whole program okay fantastic right so that's not a bad CV Birmingham FA the FA West Bromwich Albion which is obviously a Premier League football club so tell us about your story how did you get involved in football um, is it, yeah, well, it's probably from my dad, really, who played um, at a semi-professional level. And um, it was growing up watching him play. Uh, it, it gave me a real buzz and excitement around getting involved in the game. Um, so watching him, really, from his journey, kind of transferred into, to, into my life, really. Um, I did go the route of business, the um, of uh, business and doing... Um, other stuff, IT, for instance. However, I, did, I genuinely didn't have a, a real passion in it. Um, having spoken to my parents about it, they were really driven around me saying, look, your route is within sport. So gave that a go, went into college. Um, that kind of changed. I think that day, kind of one of the days where we had a discussion around careers, a former colleague of mine pretty much spoke around sports developments. And that day kind of still uh, resonates to me till this day because I knew where my goal was from that conversation. I then went on to university, linked to that. I was um, I did sports development coaching, uh, only two two courses actually, uh, many, many years ago uh, that were doing sports development coaching. So I did that um, and I really wanted to get involved in the game. So I had applied for many jobs, um, being honest, I think it was probably close to maybe trouble figures. Didn't get one single interview. Um, so I was really persistent in trying to find out ways in which I could get into the game. Um, can, sorry, can I just ask? So this was after your university degree. You applied yeah. for over 100 jobs, right? Yeah, it must have been. And, okay, this is conjecture, etc. But first, and what reasons do you think you struggled? And did everyone else in your course that you kept in touch with struggle as well? And or how did that work out? It's interesting now because um, out of the 325 um learners that was on the course, I think there's only three of us now still in the game, which is frightening to think that, um, of which were four of which of the 325 were from an Asian background. 
Um, so very limited in terms of those that within underrepresented groups going on onto the course, particularly through sport. And at the same time, the transfer of those getting full-time jobs in that was obviously the success rate in great. great. Um, so that was, was, that was generally the success rate. So it's nothing to do necessarily with you being well, a the, or a minority. It was just difficult to break into. Is that what you're saying? Well, the the, the, the key one that they kept highlighting to me was the fact that I had no experience. Um, I went through university. I did coaching myself. So I went to Stoke City Academy to work there. Um trying to apply my trade through coaching industry. Um, so I thought I had, maybe I thought I had enough experience under my belt um, and genuinely trying to do as much as I possibly can through university because I knew the fact that, look, I've only got a paper in front of me to say I've got a degree. However, it was clear to say that I needed the experience under me. Um, whether it be race, I particularly don't know, but all I kept getting the same feedback. Well, what I would say is that you're probably looking at half the feedback I was getting and the other responses I weren't getting back. All I wanted is to find out what I need to do to get to the next stage. So, yeah, it was really difficult at that time, um, which um, I knew that the journey wouldn't be, wouldn't be easy um, to try to break through, particularly the, the game that I love, which is football. When when was this approximately? When did you finish university? 2007. 13 years ago. Right. Okay. Just before we move on, just going back a little bit. So your dad was a semi-pro footballer. So whereabouts was that? Who did he play for? Uh, in the Midlands. So it was an Asian-based club. And then he moved on to a, um, they're currently playing step three. Um, so yeah, he was, um, that house in town. And then he, he well, from his, from playing at, at an Asian-based club, Wondervolts, which is based in Birmingham, um, they established in 1974. He pretty much applied his trade there, had the opportunity um, through a number of finals and then was recognised to, to go and play at that level. Okay, fantastic. And so, was he, was what, he... what I would say is in the Midlands, he, he's really well known, uh, particularly around the Asians in football, I would say, uh, and, and also around the uh, the tournaments itself. So uh, someone that they, they, it was, they were excited to watch because you never knew what you never knew what he would give you, whether it be a sending off or a, a crunching tackle, or a header. Uh, from yeah, it, it just it was exciting to watch in terms of yeah, you never knew what you're gonna get from him. Okay, and I mean, what was he? Is he was he first, second generation? Uh, second generation. So he was second generation, and when you were watching him, I mean, I, you said he was playing for an Asian club yeah. initially, etc. Did what was it? What was it like watching him both as he's your dad, he's playing, and also when he became a professional and you're watching him or semi-professional, as you're watching him as an Asian. Yeah, just to give you excitement, um, the fact that you had you, you obviously is a personal connection there, and he's getting real success within the game, um, and also the fact that yeah, someone I could look up to as a role model um, it was really clear that. What could I do within the game that could could have an, a massive effect on, on on people in a positive manner? And I was, yeah, till this day, I'm, I'm really fortunate that I have got this opportunity within the game. Okay, fair enough. All right. So, how did you break into football then after university? What was where did your break come? Yeah, well, we had a conversation um, last week. I did, I did a speech uh, related to a, a Glasgow talk itself um, that. That for for me kind of gave me my first hand experience. I had to actually go to Scotland myself, 
and are prepared to sacrifice everything for six months to gain some experience. Um, so I did some work with Rangers and Celtic Football Club around inclusion, trying to build there around uh, what they look like in terms of the local demographics and how to build community programs linking and connecting people together. So I did that for six months as well as um, work with a um, family member who was uh, leading on a piece of work around uh, the Commonwealth Games at that stage. So I was trying to get much experience from different areas of the game as possible. So whether it be strategy, coaching, uh, development as a whole. So it kind of prepared me for the next stage, which I certainly didn't want to give up on. And I was prepared to be committed and be persistent with it all. I then uh, came back to the the Midlands area, um, just trying to work out a way, a different approach to what I did previously. Um, So I started knocking on doors, actually, um, to get people to find out about myself personally. And that's where I think to this day as well, my personal touch goes a long way with people. Um, It gave me an opportunity whereby I've had a conversation with a former colleague and I've had, um, I was volunteering for six months. Um, So I pretty much um, thought if I get myself in the door, it gave me the real opportunity that I'm waiting for. Uh, when the opportunity does arise, which it did after six months, I then took up a full-time contract as administrator. Who was that for? Birmingham FA. Um, yeah, really, really fortunate that they gave me the opportunity. I knew I had to start from the bottom in terms of the ladder itself. So started working my way around there. And uh, yeah, I've just progressed really up the ladder. Okay. And so wait, how did how did that journey evolve? Um, yeah, it's, yeah, I wouldn't say it, everybody probably think it's smooth, but yeah, you, you certainly have your ups and downs going for jobs yourself that you do. You think that you're inside now, the door's wide open. You're going to find these full of opportunities. However, it doesn't avail to that, at that, um, so you just, you just keep thinking about how, what you can do better, how you can get better than, than the person that's got the job. Um, and just trying to progress in that sense. Um, I've tried, I'm lucky and really, really fortunate that I've been in so many different areas of the games, whether it's girls or women's, disability, diversity, obviously inclusion, uh, which I'm doing now, um, men's game, uh, the boys' game. Yeah, I've covered futsal. I've covered so many different areas. It's given me the experience now to to work with so many different people. Um, Work was certainly conscious about me doing so much and the fact that, I need to have a real focus on one thing. However, I knew that under my belt, I needed so many different, well, experiences to understand what's actually going on. So um, it's allowed me to kind of shape uh, my journey in that sense as well. Okay. So after after you started as an administrator, what what were your sort? Of, what were the next key roles that you held? Um, yeah, football development officer. So just um, doing some club development work, working with clubs to find out, yeah, what support they require from us from a county point of view. Um, so real, real hands-on stuff. Um, at that stage of the career, uh, quite a bit it was delivery as well, uh, doing some coaching, uh, affecting people in that sense. And uh, the development part always obviously came as, as part of that. However, as time has moved on, We've had to become real strategists, I would say, um, rather than deliverers. 
just due to the fact that the, the programmes have got certainly so big now. Um, so yeah, going from football development, club development work itself, um, I've done work in the, the, uh, the girls and women's game, uh, supporting uh, professional clubs and also grassroots clubs around certain areas of game where we can drive women's programme, girls and women's programme. Um, I then moved on to coach education, um, pretty much leading a, a new programme, starting from scratch, uh, building a team around me, of which both of us were actually Asian. So if you look at the 50 counties, I pre- that was probably a unique position ourselves, uh, which I had a, certainly a big influence on around creating a team. Uh, and particularly both of us were Asian. Um, so that was, yeah, really, really interesting when you think about it now. Um, that was certainly unique in that sense. And then building on that, became workforce manager, building on the coach education program and just um, yeah, affecting people through CPD, coach education, doing lots of work on ground level to understand what communities want. Linked to that was... Uh, we, I had a bespoke, uh, pretty much, the, we called it the Bain Mentors Programme, um, which, funny enough, the diversity inclusion mentors that will be coming out shortly through the FA will be taken on, on board now. So something I ran four years ago is now coming onto place now. So what I was trying to do there, that give people an opportunity within the community, but really affect them um, to understand what their issues are within the grassroots game, but purely based around culture development. So we had real success out of that, um, which I'm hoping, obviously, things will come back to life, life again with regards to that. Um, yeah, so, yeah, done loads of, loads of positive work um, and I continue to hopefully strive and progress people on um, and give them the opportunity that they either require within the game, uh, shaped on, through my journey and experiences. Okay, so with the BAME Mentors Programme, that's, is that a scheme to try and create more BAME coaches within within football? Yeah, we was lucky because we had close to six, I think it was, uh, mentors um, who are from underrepresented groups, uh, whether it be Asian or black. We were just trying to get out there to connect with the community to find a link with them. So one, I wanted to give uh, workforce an opportunity so there was real equality there in that sense around the opportunity, but also clubs as well. So a lot of the programs that had a real focus were whether it was geared towards number of teams or quantity or quality, I would say. However, we knew that the community needed some real help. So I was quite fortunate about driving that program on forward, um, giving people a real opportunity as clubs, but also affecting individuals. And then obviously, as I highlighted before, that it's coming on board back again around mentors, hopefully with uh, from community, um, whether it be workforce and then affecting people on ground level. Okay, yeah, I know. Yeah, I was about to say, I know that West Ham are doing something similar. They've got Rashid Abbas. I don't know if you know him. He's creating a very similar scheme at the moment which is uh, just a couple of months ago they started their first first batch of recruits for that um so do you have you worked all right so sorry just going back a little bit so with the midlands now to my mind and i could be wrong it just seems 
the Midlands has had a bit more of a history around football and football teams within the Asian community, etc. Mm. And I know you said you're also involved, I believe, at Sporting Kausa. So I, I know you've done some work with the FA. Do you, do you, have you found that the problems with Asians getting involved in football in the Midlands is the same there as everywhere else, or is, is there anything that's different about it? It's difficult. Uh, the factors could be potentially the same. Um, as he said, I like the fact that Midlands is certainly a base, I would say probably the late 60s, early 70s, a strong force because of the number of clubs that were recognised around there. Um, and obviously I, I knew that through my journey linked to, to, to my dad's playing, really. Um, really, really strong clubs, of which only one were highlighted were in the National League system. Uh, so for them, they were actually a rival to my dad's team. When you think about it, actually, they had real success there because they were the only ones that I know of, particularly in the Midlands area, were, uh, were striving on forward to try and get up the football pyramid. Which team was that? Smithwick Rangers. Right, OK. So they were the ones that were probably the, the star uh, team that were highlighted. Um whether it would be non-Asian players playing in the Carlson Football Federation tournaments, but also they are the ones that's driving forward to try and get up the, the football pyramid. Um, now that Sport and Carlson have um, now progressed really well and in the 30th year next year, which when you think about it, 30 years of a football club is probably it's, it's infancy really, you would say. But they've, they've, they've grown playing at step five football. Um, but there are a number of clubs that we obviously look as role models through, whether it be um, Albion Sports Bradford or Sporting Bengal down south or, or north. We're just, we're just trying to get up the pyramid as high as we possibly can. I'm just trying to build a... So I'm head of football there. I'm just trying to put a strategy together as to what it looked like in 10 to 15 years' time. We're trying to be really clear about what we want to try and achieve um, within those 15 years. And the key is that we want to try and be the best we possibly can on field as well as off field. Okay. So you're head of football at Sporting Kausa. What, a couple of questions. How did you get involved with them and what does head of football mean? How it came about was that um, we, I've had a good relationship with the chairman uh, for many years and um, we've always spoken about the game and what could potentially happen with the club going forward if I was to be involved. Um initially got involved with um, so the football club put on a, a 3G uh, artificial 3G pitch well for investment however they kept getting rejected for a number of years um, there are a number of factors within that the club the club had certainly raised some issues to the football foundation around why is our um, application being rejected and it was the first ever time that Paul Thorogood at that time was the chief executive at Football Foundation, had to come down to the football club to find out why the club had been rejected of the application. So um, I started to get involved myself around how we influence the decision around getting that one over the line. So we're quite fortunate, um, close to three years now, that we've managed to get the 3G uh, on and now we're playing in a stadium 3G pitch. So the infrastructure of the football club is certainly growing in terms of facilities with his assets around the football club. And I'm here to now, uh, with my role, to be clear about 
um, looking at around investment of the football club, shaping the club development work, so um, building a clear pathway in place, which is going to be really bespoke for individuals. So if you're really clear about want to play football, um, we're making the opportunity to say, look, Saturday football's for you. If you want to play recreationally and just have no responsibility in that sense to move up the ladder, then you may want to play Sundays. Um, but the club's been driven by community football so and, and the sport itself as an engagement tool. So we've been really clear, look, there's going to be sessions out there that you can get involved with no responsibility. So just turn up and play. So we've got a number of those sessions going on. So we're working closely with, with coaches and parents to telling them, look, this is our vision going forward, how they can get involved. And um, yeah, that one is certainly an exciting project for me because I'm, I'm really, I have a, I have a duty of responsibility, I think here, because there are a number of Asian players within the, the system through, through our football club that we want to try and, try and understand where they want to go within the game. So what's their vision? As a, as a player, but also parents as well. Once we understand the two, then um, hopefully we can expect, well, we can meet their needs and wants. Something that we've discussed previously on the show is the connections, the networks that football clubs have, and more specifically, the the ones or the connections that Asian football clubs don't have. So when it comes to player pathways, for not just all traditional white teams, but generally we know scouts go more often to to certain football teams because they know they've got a reputation, etc., rather than to others. And part of that exclusion is Asian football clubs. How was it like at Sporting Council? I mean, you've been going for 30 years. I appreciate that's quite new in football terms, but at the same time, it has been a decent amount of time and you are playing at a reasonable level. Do you feel that players can progress from within Sporting Kausa up the pyramid? Well, if you look at the, the first team itself, particularly with the men's, um, you've got four players, um, two of which have come through the system. So at step five, I think the dream, obviously everybody's dream is to try and get to the Premier League, but we cannot forget that there's a national system below us, which is, which is a, a very good standard. And also players are certainly getting paid to play football. So... Um, whether they want to try and do that full-time, great. Um, we've, we've got to make sure that the opportunity is clear for them and, and be realistic in that sense uh, with players that if they are want to try and get into the professional game, what's our network's looking like? So you've obviously highlighted there the fact that we're trying to work with all our professional clubs around us. So I think there's about seven or eight that we're working really closely with. We've not fixed, fixated our, our partnership with one individual academy due to the fact that we've got a number of benefits with, through all of them so we've got uh, I would say we are building our player pathway and also our programs technical programs together to make sure that we meet the demands of, of those players that feed then transition into whether it's academy football um, or it's through our men's and, and women's first team or it's a case of actually playing the professional game so we're trying to, we're trying to get that right but there's got to be certainly accountability. So you've highlighted the fact that if there's no scouts coming down to, to our games, I'm certainly going to put pressure on them to, to make sure that they identify players. We're in a good position, I would say, that we are working closely with uh, professional academies 
if you're looking at the foundation, which is um, certainly, a, a, yeah, I think it's certainly a good good start for us. Okay, fantastic. All right, so going back to your career for a second, I'm not quite sure how it happened, but I know you've also been involved with the FA and you've done some work with some of the national teams. Is that right? Yeah, so um, I work close, well, particularly with the, the para teams itself. Um, I, I shape the uh, national squads, so 16 to 19, the best of them come together um, at Lillyshaw um, every other month and uh, we work with them over a weekend. So I'm a lead coach for that. And um, yeah, really, really fortunate that I've been in particularly the disability game itself for many, many years. I can't remember how many, but it seems too long ago. But yeah, it's a, it's a great opportunity for me to kind of, whether it's securing a, a England team position or as a case of just working with the the, the future generation of, of, of our footballers. But the, the, I want to try and highlight the fact that we have a number of Asian players and which I work closely with the FA to say, look, don't forget there's players out there that are representing the country as well uh, from an Asian background that need to be highlighted as well. Um, two of which have been highlighted um, probably in the last, I'll probably say 18 months, which is great to see because we, we, let's be honest, we can't, we can't forget. It's not just about the men's game and we want to try and find the next Premier League player. It's about the women's game, but also other areas of the game, whether it is disability or futsal, for instance. So there's no, I'm always constantly working with the FA, really, really closely to ensure that everyone within the game, whether it's elite, they are platformed. So I believe we've had Asians represent both, is it the women's deaf team and the men's blind team? Is, yeah, is that right? That's, that's correct, yeah. So Lucinda, um, we've done some work with, and, and Azim, um, I have uh, mentored uh, on a few camps before, so it's great to see the two individuals being highlighted because look, they've been through a journey, and their journey is probably a lot tougher than you would say non-disabled. So um, fantastic to see that yeah, that they've been highlighted, and let's um, make sure they they are platformed as well as all the others that are out there. Okay, fantastic, and. So, I mean, all right. So, in sticking with the the disabled teams for the national team, is there what sort of participation levels have we got within the Asian community? I would say that's increasing. Um, whether that's through myself as as connecting with people in the community, particularly in Birmingham, or it's the case of uh, working with networks, which is certainly uh, starting to have a real effect on things. So, if you look at our participation program itself, you, you're looking close to 25% from a BAME background, which is over the national average. And um, uh, it's probably one of the largest disability, or if not the largest disability sport programs in the country. And is this is this a national, the national, are you talking nationally or are you talking about locally? Oh, sorry, that was, yeah, that's locally. However, the, the transfer of, we, we obviously trying to find out what they want to try and achieve within the game as well. Um, we all, we just, we just go off the model, be the best you possibly can. So if it's a case of you have, you're wanting that grassroots opportunity and look, there might be people out there that never, never engage with football in their lives. Could be a 40 year old. All they want to just do have some physical activity. However, there's others out there that I'm really, really closely working with that are uh, probably the, the next crop of players coming through to the England senior teams of different impairments. 
So they have a real goal that they want to try and achieve and hopefully I can support them uh, through their journey. So the transfer of um, players from an Asian background um, within the, the, England, the senior teams, the seven impairment specific teams itself, you start to see a bit more um, from, from yeah, diverse backgrounds. Um, and something I've been working with the FA closely with is around, um, particularly around uh, inclusion uh, programme. So there's one pilot in London at the minute. We are looking one, hopefully, in the Midlands, uh, which I've been in talks with the FA for uh, some time now. And I'm just conscious about, yeah, getting that moving, really, with that programme, due to the fact that look, there's individuals now that we're highlighting. And we want to give them the goal. So I'll give you a prime example. Um, I did a England Town Day in Oxford. And there was an Asian parent there I was working with. And he came over to me. He was quite surprised to see me uh, during the actual England Town Day. And um, he's quite sceptical uh, to get involved. His son plays at a really good level. He's cerebral palsy. Affected down one side. And um, I highlighted him to, to get involved in our regional camps, which are school half-terms. They're currently based in London. Um, and it's just a case of us connecting straight away from, from our eyes to say, look, actually, he's, he's one of us. Um, I've highlighted the fact that his son is playing at a really good standard and we want to give him the best tools we possibly can to achieve his goal. And he's already highlighted the fact that he wants to be playing for England one day. So... Yeah, it's great to see that there's there's more and more Asian faces that have been recognised, but also you yeah, highlight within the game itself from a different area. So I'm conscious that through my experiences and, and skill, that people are starting to be recognised from more different areas of the game. Um, and that's my experience through my journey, um, highlighting the fact that, yeah. Cause, because I think sometimes we, we, we feel actually we want to see that Premier League play on the TV, however... There's, there's others out there that, that certainly uh, either coming up the ramps or already there received a number of exp uh, appearances for the for the national team and just need to be yeah highlighted and, and raise awareness about yeah I I mean it was quite interesting I so I didn't know a lot about this stuff before I think it was in March, it was in March, just before the lockdown, I went to one of the FA's regional Asian uh, roadshows. Mm -hmm. And that's when I first saw a couple of promo videos they have. They had Rittish from, from Charlton Women's. They also had Lucinda, who you mentioned. And sorry, I forget the name of the, the blind footballer. Was it Asim, did you say? Azim. Azim, yep. So... So that was fantastic to see. I mean, the fact that it doesn't matter that it's disabled sport, the fact they're representing England, they've got, they must've been for a journey. As you said, they have to be talented too. And it, that was, I thought it was just fantastic to see. Do you think that we do enough? How should I put this? I guess as a community to kind of highlight and support the success stories that we do have. Yeah. As you know, like this, the, the area I'm in, the reason why I'm in it, because I want to be challenged. And I find out the, I wouldn't say the other areas are too easy in the sense so that you can start working it affecting the game, but there's more factors to be involved with, particularly around disability football. And I'm always intrigued to find out what we can do more. And um, particularly 
there probably is that perception around um, people with disabilities, particularly from from Southeast Asian communities, and we've got to break down that stigma and stereotype. Hence, why I'm trying to put these role models out there, whether it's locally or linked within our national program around role models, that people can see actually that there is an end goal for us, and we can achieve anything. So, I'm really, yeah, it just it's just for me to to make sure that I'm here to platform them while I've got the opportunity. I'm in the game. Why do you think it is that we've had representatives at national level in some of the disabled fields and we're still really struggling, even at Premier League level, let alone national level, on the able-bodied side? How long you got for this one? Ha! Yeah, I know. The, certainly, the the same question keeps arising. And um, how I got into involved with the National Asian Football Forum, I was only eighteen years old, and start to hear a lot of noise down London to find out exactly what was going on. So I thought I'd actually travel to London, um, go on train to find out about more about what is actually happening out there around Asians in football. So I ended up tending to these forums to find out who's doing what. Uh, what's what's the vision for us going forward with it all? Um, there was certainly a lot of talk around what we could do, but everyone seemed to be doing their own thing. And what I'm conscious is that in order for us to, to make a big impact in what we could do, we need to collaborate together, whether it's individuals or partners or organisations. We really need to start working together, um, whether it's um, programmes that we've highlighted before, um, I'll, I'll be honest, clubs haven't taken them on. Um, whether it's the mentoring programme or it's others, we, we just, it's just a case of, there's so many, the, the, what I would say, there's so many factors to that are involved around highlighting. For us, key thing is that, can we get the foundation right? So the more and more players that we have in the system, uh, it gives us opportunity rather than it being a player coming through once in a blue moon. So, um, let's be honest it's a numbers game so if you get the bottom right the more and more numbers are coming through the system I'm just saying it from talk so that's obviously easier to say than, than doing it what do you mean by the bottom do you mean at academy level or professional, or professional yeah, clubs or do you mean grassroots well linking from obviously starts from the grassroots don't it the route itself um, we need to get that right um, whether it's around clear, uh, coach and player development um, feeding into the, obviously the, the professional academies. Um, I just got to be uh, mindful, obviously, uh, with the women's, the girls' women's program is the regional talent clubs, and then feed them into with the men's. It's the national league system, or it's a case of professional game, or it's with the women's is uh, straight into grassroots into pretty much the, the women's super league. So the women's program is certainly a lot shorter. Um, but the more numbers that we have at the very bottom, it, it is uh, a pyramid. And we want to obviously highlight, well, we, the key is that we want to try and get people at the very top, don't we? So, yeah, similar to like recruitment, the more and more numbers that you have at the very bottom, it, it hopefully gives us a better opportunity uh, percentage-wise trying to trying to get to the top. But as I highlighted, it's really, really easy to say, that, to say it. Then to do it, there's so many different factors in the game. 
that has has played an advantage to some, but also a disadvantage to others. Okay. Um, Z, Kevil, any questions at the moment? Yeah, I've got a question for, for Josby. Obviously, we've um, we've known each other for a while, uh, not really been in contact in recent years, but I think is that part of the issue as well, that um, the people who you were working together with, or you, you mentioned that the National Asian Football Forum, there was still a like-mindedness, even though people were doing their own thing, there was still a like-mindedness that we were trying to achieve something within the game uh, as a community. Uh, but then the communication between individuals and groups seems to have faded away. And all of a sudden, like, like, like we mentioned previously, everyone's working disparately and working on their own thing. We don't actually have a clear picture of what's actually happening in the game. Listening to you has been quite refreshing to see all the things that you are actively doing in so many aspects of the game. Um, how important is it to for, for us now at this moment where you've highlighted you're still in the game, still working, to reconnect with individuals that you were with in the past to see what progress that they have made and actually say we've actually moved in a positive direction, even though it's not immediately visible to the eye. Yeah, so a good, really good point there because one of the actions for me is now that I'm going to go back and um, get in touch with the people that I spoke to uh, probably around 2005, 2006, around the National Asian Football Forum who have now come away actively from the game. So I'm conscious about, yeah, as soon as we, we finish with this, I'm going to get in touch with them to find out actually what they're doing and whether they're looking to come back within the game. Um yeah, because there's a lot of experience and knowledge around there. For me, uh, as a start on my journey, is incredible because I'm learning off these guys who are pretty much um, who've been in the game for for many many years. I'm understanding a lot more. So my fast track of, I would say, of my learning was very much coming to these conferences and forums to find out exactly what was people doing, and uh, they were role models as well, like your likes of Piara, Jazz, Baines, um, who are really, really influential. So it gave me uh, a point to think, actually, I want to get to where they, they have got to. So, yeah, it's, it's sad that, obviously, the uh, National Asian Football Forum does not exist anymore, and we've kind of dispersed and got on with our own things now. Um, we're at a time where four years with particularly if you look at the FA itself with the, the new strategy that we've got a real good influence I would say around coaching um, whether it's around the Butchies programme particularly around the elite coach uh, placement programme um, where we're highlighting underrepresented groups or individuals I would say to get involved with a professional academy um, which people are saying we don't get the opportunity. So through this program, you'll get that for 12 months. Uh, at the same time, there is opportunities around the national teams, England, uh, men's, and more recently, uh, the, the women's section as well. So there's certainly if, um, what would say that there's a priority taking place in the next four years. We just need to get it right. Um, we've got four years in our hands now. As I highlight the, the coaching side, is it certainly the, the mentoring side that Steve Smith is now leading on? So you'll have um, you've got coach development officers working in, in certain regions. 
think there's uh, close to eight, maybe. You then obviously have the, the diversity inclusion mentors uh, as well on top of that. So there's a, there's a wider workforce, I would say. And it's the first ever time that you're probably having a real specific focus around diversity inclusion. So, yes, we've lost people along the journey. We want to bring them back to find if they can come back. Um, and, yeah, the key thing is that we want to try and connect together. And, um, yeah, the programs that we're trying to support is that, we yeah, we're doing as much as we possibly can. I know people are trying to, trying to hammer the FA, I would say. Um, however, you need to start to delve into it strategy i would say to many others to say look is there strategy based around finding the premier league, next premier league player no um could that be the impact could the strategy change yes it can so we just need to come together um as individuals and, and key stakeholders to find out what our our strategy is going to be so with these consultations they are going to be key to going forward um yeah, that's that's for me. I think straight away everyone's obviously highlighting the fact that, that yes, the FA do have a have a play a part to play. However, if you look at particularly my in my work and well locally and nationally, our games based around grassroots is pretty much ninety nine percent. No, probably no point one percent of that is probably a professional game. I think. Just just a follow-up, how, how important is it to make that point that how big grassroots is and how much emphasis needs to be put on that point? Because you're talking about um, impact, right? So if you're saying at the bottom, we just mentioned about recruitment earlier, the more you have, say, if you look at a top-down approach, they say the more you have at the top of the funnel, the more we'll filter through. Uh, isn't it the case that we need to have a, a really good emphasis at grassroots and actually say that there are so many challenges happening, but on the other front, like you mentioned, there's a sort of, and I think, was it Bayard who was with you as well at Birmingham FA? So yeah. two, two, yeah, two, two Asian guys leading on these like grassroots programs to constantly highlight the fact that there are individuals, uh, like you mentioned, like key stakeholders and people who have an influence of sort in positions mm. within uh, the regional structures of the FA that we can tap into and see as someone who looks like us that is actually benefiting us as well. Um, I think that's what this this pod has been try, uh, is attempting to do over the last three episodes is to highlight these individuals in different areas. Um, what more do you think we could do to highlight that fact? Do you think it should be coming from the FA or the regional FA to do that, or is it, should it be our media? Or what do you think will help push that message out? Just working with, I think we we certainly need to uh, work together as one. Um, I'm in a obviously a position myself that I've got a platform and I've got to make sure that I reach out to the community, but also the community reaching out to us. So many many weeks ago there was um, an interview with a specific club in the Midlands, highlighting the fact that no scouts coming to to our games, and uh, I'm thinking straight away, look. If you want things to happen, you've got to go out and make it happen. That, that's always been my motto, whether it's football or life. So um, things don't just turn up on a, on a plate and you're there prepared to, to eat it. You've got to go out there, go and find it. So what I would say to clubs is go and connect and work with 
the people that are implementing decisions, whether it is professional academies, go and work with them, find out what they're doing. What's what's the coaching like? Can I link some of, some of the uh, the work into what you do within your area, within your community? And um, hopefully you, you get closer to them to find out exactly how then you can transition players and maybe into academy is if that's the the kind of vision for for that football club uh, we just got to be obviously mindful that there's not every single player or every single club that want to see a premier league star um but highlighting the fact that we've got to make sure we get many many players if that's the case our vision as, as a whole that we want to see the top end the cream um that there's a number of players out playing at the very bottom and then we can start to make people accountable for their actions and start putting pressure as, as one. And that's where you see the biggest impact, not a case of um, delivering and overseeing projects on your own accord and uh, thinking that you, you, you're going to make it. Um, the key is for us, we, we've got to get strengthened within our community to make sure that to find out exactly what we want to try and achieve and then hopefully we can achieve those outcomes. But yeah, I'm, I'm quite fortunate that yeah, I have been in the game for many, many years that the connections up right up and down the country that um, yeah, we're, we're kind of linked with um, whether it's out of work, I've pretty much trying to yeah, just find out what people want and really being supportive of them. Um, or link them in with local contacts. So it's key that we, we get it right as well in terms of finding out uh, people got to be seen as well while they're in, in these positions. Uh, that's really important. I think that ties in quite nicely with something else that you said you do, which is you've been consulting with the FA on their talent ID or their revamped talent talent ID scheme. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Because on one side, yeah, it's fine a club reaching out and saying to clubs higher up or scouts, come and see our teams. But I guess if they if the scouts come under duress or they already come with their own preconceived biases and prejudices, it's it doesn't really resolve anything. So what what work have you been doing with the FA in that regard? Oh yeah, just um, doing some consultancy work around identifying particularly players um, of, of disability, feed them into our talent pathway. Um, however, uh, looking wider around that agenda, uh, particularly around Asian in football itself, um, working closely with the FA. Well, with, with Kevin, who was previously just a quality manager, he's now moved on, um, as well as uh, Butch, who was delivering on, on talent ID workshops, giving some, some real key life scenarios really uh, around the level two course itself around Asians in football and also the stereotypes and biases. So it starts to make people think particularly around, well, majority of those that have been on the level two are from a professional game, I would say. So it gets them thinking a lot more around Asians in football. And uh, if there are any uh, unconscious bias towards uh certain individuals or clubs really. So yeah, just trying to get our message out there. Um, But as you know, sometimes it can be slow progress. However, there is a long-term pitch around that. Do you think from what you know about the talent ID scheme that it, is it going to make inroads into 
people's unconscious biases and preconceived ideas and prejudices, etc. There's probably, let's be honest, the, the courses itself, they're not run frequently. Um, there's been a massive shift and change, uh, particularly around the culture education program. Um, more recently, where the FA have now taken the, the culture education program away from counties, which they'll be delivering. Uh, so it, there's had a huge change in that fact uh, during this period. Um, so be, it, the courses could be looking a lot different, uh, whether they'll all be online, I'm not sure. Um, yeah, just because I say the number of frequent, uh, going back to the, the courses that are being delivered, um, there's less so to, to get a message out there. Obviously, is there anything that you could do? There's, there's always more so you can do. Um, so it, for us, to, it's trying to get the message out there through uh, the channel ID lead um, out, out to whether it's uh, scouts or grassroots clubs to, to, to make them consciously aware about yeah, the perceptions and also the, the barriers in which why there's probably a lack of representation around the top end of the game. But yes, talent ID is certainly a, a key area which we can certainly look at. Um, and hopefully I, I can I can support the the team around that um, through through my role. So yeah, I've actually just um literally left a message with with the lead itself to have a conversation uh, as to what's happening now with the talent ID program and who's in charge. Um, so we just I yeah, just trying to get a clear pitch and um, give it give a real key message because if yeah I'm just I'm always thinking about I, I'm in a position whereby I can maybe I do have an effect on on change and if I, if that's the case then I've got to make sure I get the the message out there whether it's directly from from myself through experience and, and hearing it or it's being a voice to people whether it's within the community grassroots clubs um, yeah okay. Fantastic. Right. So, and then I guess finally, do you, do you want to tell us a little bit more about the work you're doing with West Bromwich Albion, what you're hoping to achieve from that and where do you think it can lead to? Interesting because it's a, pretty much a blank canvas for me. Um, so the meeting's taking place this week, which is the first one. I'm just trying to um, find out from them uh, initially to see they, where they want to, take it really around diversity inclusion. Um, but I've got to be quite clear around um, the purpose and the meaningful impact that they want to try and make, whether it's, I'm on a two year term there. So whether it's two years now, or it's a case of after, whether I'm still there or not. Um, but the, the kind of aim for me is that making sure placing people at the heart of everything that we do. Um, with everything, well, if we get people together, we know that we can strengthen. Um, but I want to be really clear about, we highlight the fact around the club's identity, uh, it being quite unique, um, well, in a sense of players that come through the system, uh, particularly uh, uh, black players. But I've got to be, uh, find out really well what they want to try and achieve. For me, um, what I want to try and achieve from the club is one, trying to find out about recruitment and where they're recruiting and also the recruitment policies. 
the engagement and partnerships that they have with locally and nationally and how that feeds into uh, their wider work. Possibly linked to maybe fan engagement, so whether that's through the doors um, and how that links into uh, whether they're assigned to grassroots clubs, um, highlighting uh, national campaigns and movements, which ties into celebrating culture, because the key is that, yes, we're, we're doing all this fantastic work. How can we highlight the fact that there's individuals within the football club um, that can share the experience tied to those, those national initiatives or campaigns and movements? Um, yeah, I think we want to see more. Well, ultimately, the, the, the key for, for me is that making sure that we see more representation on workforce, whether it's coaches, managers, but also around players as well. Is it realistic seeing players feeding through from whether it's academy, club academy to men's first team or it's regional talent club uh, from girls' point of view to feeding into their uh, women's team? So, yeah, it would be interesting to find out what they want to try and achieve, but also I've got to be, yeah, hopefully I'll be quite clear with a few more points that I've highlighted there that there's a long-term strategy and plan about what could be achieved and who what's realistic. Who are you dealing with at the club? Sorry, let me rephrase that. So, so the club's owned by a Chinese consortium, That's am correct. I right? Yeah. So... Do they have representatives of themselves that they put on the board or have they just created a board that that governs the club and you're dealing with them? Yes, yeah, it's a structure that whereby um, it's kind of based uh, through the community director who's leading on it uh, at, at the football club. Um, so there's seven new board members of which... If you look at representation, there's three out of the seven. And, um, three yeah. of the seven are what? Sorry, uh, two are Asian. One is one is uh, Afro Caribbean. Right. Okay. Um, we just yeah. I'm just um, we're, we're trying to look at the fact that two of us, particularly from an Asian background, have real experiences around equality, diversity, inclusion, um, but also. Um, Monica has a huge, had a huge impact and, and experience around mental health. So we're, we're doing some trying to tie the two together around that. Um, and we, yeah, it's just a case of yeah, it's because it's brand new. We don't really know what what's expected. So uh, we went to the launch recently at our game, and yeah, it's going to be it will be interesting to see um, and find out more around what impact that we can have uh, because those that do know me certainly I'm not here to sit around a table and just talk uh, I want to hopefully produce action and make sure that there is a legacy left whether I'm still around or not uh, after those two years but I I'm, I'm really want to make sure that that there is a, a future uh, linked to the agreement obviously with the football club to find out exactly the, the achievement that they want to Try and try and do. Okay, fantastic. Any more questions, Zee? Yeah, um, just just a quick one about um, this year in particular, like twenty twenty and and lockdown. 
how much has that um, or has it set you back in any way in terms of the projects you are looking to de- deliver or did you have to find uh, different ways of delivering uh, programs and initiatives? Yeah, great question. Um, yeah, it's certainly been challenging times for everybody. Um, some programs that are prioritised, I wish I could have got them up and running. However, things are out of our hands uh, in that sense. So I have some of them, I'll be honest, I have put on the back burner. Some have been quite creative. So even like the club stuff around Sport and Castle, we've had pretty much go online and um, work with coaches to to pretty much have a shape around what the long-term future looks like for the football club. So, yeah, some projects, um, we, have, we certainly had to be creative. Some of have held back on. And we're just hoping, obviously, we, we get a, an agreement um, particularly around the um, yeah, f- basically full uh, motion of, of what this new normal looks like for us uh, because they're still individuals and certainly parents are cautious I would say to coming back even though we've had a, obviously a second return since last Wednesday um, yeah it just it just yeah, it has been challenging um, but we've had to obviously get through it me personally, I've been really, really busy with things, um, whether it's consultancy work uh, with certain yeah, various organisations or it's just work stuff in general. But, um, yeah, who would have thought that I remember going on a unannounced safeguarding visit to a grassroots club on March the 16th, I think it was, or the 17th. Um, I'm coming into a venue whereby I'm doing a safeguarding visit and then everyone's running out the venue to find out the Prime Minister has mentioned that there's everybody's in lockdown. So who would have thought you know, we would have been back a couple of weeks, but yeah, six months down the line was well more than that actually now, aren't we? So yes, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Um but we, yeah, it, it has been difficult for individuals. Um uh, working with uh people that really particularly well locally with my program day to day, it has been very, very difficult because Sport and particularly football gives them the tool to get to get them out there, uh, shared accommodation or houses, uh, where their form of living is. Um, yeah, yeah, um, it has been very very difficult, particularly for people with disabilities, because their routines are pretty much living life. But football is their main life. Uh, having not having had the routine, yeah. has put them in a certain state really and we've had to yeah work closely with organizations to ensure that they are mostly motivated to to return back to play okay fantastic um so if if people want to know what you're up to with all the different things you're doing uh do you have social media is there how how can we find out well i'll try and stay away from it if i could (laughs) Otherwise, I'll be there pretty much day in, day out, really, with it all. Um, with myself, if you want to, yeah, certainly can contact me on um, my personal email address. Um, do I share it now? or It's up to you. Can, we can put it in the show notes if you want to give it to us afterwards. Yeah, that's How about fine. Sporting Calsa? How do we follow Sporting Calsa? Um, yeah, so pretty much uh, Sporting Calsa stuff is uh, at Sporting Calsa. Um, yeah. And then you got the women's section, which is at Sporting Calsa Women. Um, you got the youth, sport and castle youth. Um, I can share those details over to you. Um, yep. 
all the projects that I'm linked with or people want to try and connect to find out more what's going on. Certainly, uh, hopefully I can be a helping hand to everybody. Yeah, no, listen, it sounds like it. it sounds like you're 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 doing a lot already and you're not slowing down. As you've mentioned, <laughs> you're going to start getting in touch with people that you haven't been in touch with. That's what, that's what family tells me. <laughs> yeah. Which, which is fantastic, which is what we need. And it's, it's about keeping the conversation going, etc. So um, likewise, Jazz, thank you very much for your time. If there's anything we can do to help you or connect you with any of the people perhaps that we've already spoken to on the pod, etc. Then, yeah, listen, happy to help and continue the conversation. Thanks. Appreciate it, Tom. Yeah, excellent. Thank you very much for your time, Jazz. Take care.